Hi there, this is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ken. And I'm Tessa. In this season of How to Choose, we're covering some of the common obstacles that impede good decision making and how to overcome them. That's right. And in today's episode, Tessa, we will be looking at how some people become trapped in the search for the right choice. And we'll look at some questions that we can ask ourselves to determine whether or not a particular decision might have a right or wrong option. This is such an interesting take on decision making. I never really stop to think if this is a right, wrong decision, and I'm sure most of us just default to it. Yeah, and I think we overdo the right, wrong categories when it comes to decision making. Um, Here's some examples. I'm just waiting for the right guy to come along. That job is wrong for me. Um, How sure can we be that a choice is right or wrong? Remember the Tina Turner song, Simply the Best? Yep, I do. And I'm sure you've given all our listeners an earworm for the rest of the day now. (laughs) Yes, apologies for that. Well, Tina is using absolute language here. She sings, you're simply the best, better than all the rest. But then she backs away from that absolute claim and she says instead, you're really just better than anyone I've ever met. And let's be honest, how many people has Tina Turner met anyway? As statistics reveal, new people are being born all the time. Even if she had a team to help her, Tina just couldn't ensure that her judgment was completely current and up to date. I mean, she should really release a correction, shouldn't she? Something like, you're better than most of the people that I've met. Yes, look, it's slightly less catchy, but definitely more accurate. All right, silliness aside, let me share some relationship insights. In my experience, Tessa, one of the most surprising things about living with someone else is discovering that a person that you love and respect has no idea about the right way to do a whole bunch of basic household activities. This seemingly intelligent person never learned the right way to load the dishwasher or the right way to fold socks. They've somehow gone through life never learning the proper way to cook eggs or the right way to vacuum the house. Have you encountered any other similarly shocking examples? Look, I have, Ken. Um, My partner has still not learned that plastic containers need to be stored with their lids on, not just all higgledy-piggledy in the drawer, Uh, or that big plates go at the back of the dishwasher and little plates at the front. Yes. And, of course, the other thing you discover shortly after this horrible realisation is that you are carrying a very heavy responsibility as the custodian of knowledge the knowledge of the right way to do pretty much everything. Look, I know what you mean. It is an enormous burden, and I do often feel like Atlas in my house. Well, listen, in case you've missed it, (laughs) I am being facetious. But there is a kernel of truth here, and that is it is easy for us to form strong views about the right way to do a whole lot of things in life. And often these are unimportant and superficial things. Have you ever heard someone say when looking at the way another person is dressed, that's just wrong? Once we establish in our own minds what the right way looks like, by implication, the other ways of folding socks and making sandwiches, of walking and speaking, are wrong. Look, how do we become so dogmatic that our way is right? I think there's probably a few main contributors. It's worth asking yourself, what was your home environment like growing up? Were your parents fairly set in their ways of doing things? Were they dismissive of other people who did things differently? Was there a lot of correction around the right way to do things? I think that is the key way that we're shaped into thinking that there are right and wrong ways to do things, isn't it? 
Yeah, look, I mean, it's very true. I do joke about the dishwasher, but at the end of the day, I'm accepting that big plates at the front is a perfectly adequate way to wash dishes. Um, and my parents were pretty relaxed, so I don't think I had a lot of modelling of domestic extremism growing yeah. up. <laughs> and another factor that can help or hinder, I think, is simply exposure to different ways of doing things. So how much time did you spend visiting other people's houses who did things differently? Did you get to travel overseas and see different cultures? And I know personally that every time I've traveled, it has opened my eyes to see that there are many different ways to live and that mine is not necessarily the right way. Yeah, I love that self-reflection moment you have when you travel and you realize that what you do is actually based on culture and it's not just the way that it is. Yeah, one of the ones I can remember, I've seen so many, but one of the things that surprised me most was in Mauritania. Um, and having lived in the Arab world for a little while at that point, and I went to Mauritania, we came in, they welcomed us in for, uh, for lunch, and we were sitting on the floor. And they just brought out a tablecloth, laid it on the floor, loaded it up with uh, foods, and we sat around eating on the floor, on the tablecloth, um, which felt very strange. But again, it was just a different way to do things. That perfectly adequate way as well. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, it was pretty easy to clean up. You just grabbed the four corners of the tablecloth and whooshed it out <laughs> of the room. So that was it. Um, look, beyond those practices that we learn in childhood and then embrace as the right way to do things, I also believe that there's a basic progression of thinking that can take us to this place of judgmentalism. Let me explain. We start by deciding that a particular way of doing something is good. Let's say it's the way we stack the dishwasher. After a bit of trial and error, we find a way that allows us to fit all the bowls, plates, cups, pots, pans and utensils, and they come out clean and undamaged at the end. We have a good way to load the dishwasher. Then we start noticing the way that other people do it. We spot the flaws in their approach and we decide that our way is better. Yeah, I can see that happening. Um, is there any issue, though, with that mental shift from my way is good to my way is better? Look, not necessarily. Um, if you're someone who's generally content with how you do things and you're largely unbothered by the way other people do things, then you are probably living a pretty happy life. For you, good is good enough and you don't overthink things. Personally, though, that's not how my brain works. And Tess, you and I are both analysts. We've been trained to evaluate and try to understand how things work. I'm someone who often thinks about what is the better way to do things. Yeah, I'm definitely the same. I mean, is this a bad approach though? Always looking for how to improve things? No, I'd say that's generally not a problem. As long as I keep a couple of things in mind. The first is that other people's way of doing things might be better than mine. If I'm going to compare, then I need to be open-minded and strive to be objective. I might even find out shock, horror, that someone else has a better way to load the dishwasher. And then rather than becoming jealous and enraged, I can observe and learn and imitate and improve. <laughs> Look, once I saw a friend's parent fold a fitted sheet, so they ended up flat. And I actually got them to show me. And now that I can never go back to the lumpy mess that I used to do. So I'm, I'm definitely open to improving the way I do things. Um, I also recently saw a friend make pancakes in the blender. And that's my, now my new standard. No yeah. hand mixing. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, another thing to remember is this. Other people might be quite content with their good way of doing things and they may have no interest in optimising. So the message there is leave them alone, get on with your life and keep your judgments to yourself. <laughs> and I'm saying that to myself as much as to anyone else. 
So you're saying you don't want to learn how to revolutionize your life with my fitted sheet folding technique, Ken? Uh, on the contrary, actually, <laughs> I would love to learn that. Maybe we should upload a video, Tess. Um, but look, we've gone off on a little tangent there. But let's think. We started with thinking that our way of loading the dishwasher is good. Then we decided that our way is better than other ways. And the final step? Thinking our way is the right way? Yes. And it's a subtle shift, but it can have quite a profound impact on how we experience the world and the people around us. Because as we said before, if our way is the right way, then by implication, the other ways are wrong. And I look, I saw something similar when I was living overseas. I visited the home of an older guy and I did the washing up after dinner and it was old school manual washing up. I was very surprised to see how agitated he became and to discover how many apparent right and wrong ways of washing up there were. I, of course, was doing several things wrong. What on earth were you doing to those dishes, Ken? Yeah. <laughs> no. uh, well, one thing was that when I had washed the knives, I was placing them blade downwards uh, carefully. I wasn't hurling them into the, <laughs> into the rack. I was placing them blade downwards, which apparently could have damaged the blades or mm. the rack. Um, I was personally more worried about having the blade upwards so that I would damage my hand when mm. I went to pick them up again. But no, I was doing that wrong. So in contrast, I suppose, if we simply see our way as a good way, then there can be other good ways of doing things too. Exactly. So this is about how we form judgments. But isn't this a little bit peripheral to decision-making? Well, look, making judgments is a key component of decision-making, unless we're talking about intuitive decisions or even some of the habits that we talked about last week. Um, we evaluate options so that we can choose one that's suitable. So I, I believe it's actually fundamental to how we approach decisions. If your basic belief is that there is a right and wrong way to do most things, then it's easy to transfer that to decisions. You will tend to speak in terms of right and wrong choices. Um, that's just not the right job for me. I'm waiting to find the right person before I start dating again. So on that basis, is everything just relative? Are there no right or wrong choices? Well, despite everything that I've just said, yes, <laughs> I'm not a relativist. I do believe that there are some choices that are absolutely right or wrong, but we need to apply this right-wrong prism sparingly. So when should we think in terms of right and wrong for our decision-making? Well, let's start with this. Unless you're an anarchist or you are campaigning against what you believe are fundamentally unjust laws, then one place is to start looking at the laws of the country or state in mm. which you live. Those laws will guide your decisions. Are you married but wanting to take a second spouse? Well, in some countries that's okay, and we've got people listening in a lot of different countries, but if you live in Australia, you can have only one husband or wife at a time. All citizens of Australia are expected to comply with those laws. And I guess organisations and employers will have rules as well. Exactly. So we've got laws of the country, we've got rules of the organisation. Um, a third thing to think about is your values, which I know we've spoken about quite a lot on how to choose. Your values will generate a kind of personal code of conduct that you try to live by. And that could be as broad as the golden rule of do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Uh, or you might have a set of specific personal rules Always repay your debts. Always keep your promises. Never walk past someone in need. Never take the lift if it's more than three 
floors. Is that yours? Yeah, that's my personal law, Ken. So if you're with me, you're not allowed to take that lift. Um, <laughs> but no, to be fair, those aren't necessarily applicable to everyone, are they? Um, not everyone does have to take the stairs. There's, you know, if you've got a broken foot, I'll, I'll give you the, the break. The benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, and that's right. And look, here's the thing though, differences in values can be even harder for us to accept than differences in how we load the dishwasher. But you make a really important point. What's wrong for me might not be wrong for you. So where does this leave us? So I think the conclusion is some decisions fall into the right-wrong category, but many do not. I would say we need to use this category sparingly. We need to consider carefully what our moral code is telling us and the laws of your country and the rules of the workplace. But allow that the people around you will make a lot of decisions that aren't necessarily right or wrong. They're just different. So what do we do with this information to improve our decision-making, Ken? Well, I'm going to pose a challenge. When it comes to choices and decisions, I think we need to watch our language. And by that, I mean start tuning in to when you or the people around you describe a choice as right or wrong. So when my friend says her Tinder date wasn't right for her, I should push back? Well, look, I think it's just a good opportunity to ask her some questions. So do you think there's such a person as Mr. Right? Um, What boxes would that person need to tick to be the right partner for you? So it's an opportunity to probe. Um, And more broadly, as a principle, we can train ourselves to ask, is this actually a right or wrong choice? And if instead of framing this as a matter of finding the right option, I focus on finding a good option, or maybe I focus on finding the better of two or three options, how does that change my decision-making? Yeah, good point. So maybe on your online dating profile, this would be not narrowing yourself down to just over six-foot-tall doctors between 30 and 35, maybe being open to dentists as well. Dentists? (laughs) (laughs) That is a bridge too far. No, not at all. Um, Yeah, look, I think that's a good example, Tess. Um, And back to your friend and her Tinder date. I agree that sometimes you will decide that a person is a wrong choice for you. And we can and we should definitely apply some non-negotiable conditions upon potential partners. They have to treat us with respect. They have to be trustworthy. If you want to start a family, they have to want to start a family too. But understand that there is a fundamental difference between rejecting a partner because they don't treat us respectfully or because you have diametrically opposed positions on starting a family and rejecting someone because they're a low talker (laughs) (laughs) or because we don't like the sound they make when they're eating soup. Now, this is a recurring and hilarious joke in Seinfeld. But if you translate that to real life, you will end up a sad and lonely person. By reducing the number of absolute judgments and decisions that we're making, I think we ease a lot of the pressure on ourselves and we'll find ourselves being far less judgmental about other people who are making different choices to us. Yeah, look, I think those Seinfeld examples are great as the what not to do. Like they spend their entire life judging and thinking they are better than everyone else, don't they? Yeah, and how did it end up? Sad and alone and in jail, actually, weren't they? Exactly, (laughs) for being terrible people. Yeah. Um, So, Tess, what's your one takeaway from today's show? Look, I really like your point about uh, watching your language. My daughter's nearly one years old and I really think that I need to 
be conscious about modeling my behavior and the language that I use? Am I showing to her that I'm a judgmental person and that our way is the best way? Or am I showing that our way is just one way of doing things and the neighbors might do it differently and someone across the world is going to do it a totally different way and they're all fine? And look, I think, you know, we've joked around in this episode, but that absolutely, wouldn't we live in a happier society if we all embrace this, you know, less of the right wrong, uh, you know, save it for those moments when it is absolutely necessary uh, and more of the, this is good and that's also good. I'm going to strive, Ken. I've got some some homework to do. Yeah, that's awesome. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to How to Choose and visit us at goodbetterright.com.au. And please tell your friends about us too. We'd love to meet them. Thanks so much for joining us in today's episode. We've talked about the concept of right and wrong choices and the value of not overusing the right-wrong category for making choices. And Tess, this is the last episode of season one. (gasps) Very sad. It is. We'll be taking a break after this, um, but we're hoping to be back in spring with season two, which is September. Yes. Or if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, that's fall. And what about Iceland? Is it do they have seasons in Iceland? Yeah, maybe in the cold season we'll be back. So if you're in Iceland, please illuminate us. We would love to know. Um, and stay tuned. We will be back. We will. And we'd love to have feedback from you. Please reach out uh, and otherwise see you for season two. Yep. Bye for now. 